Morning. How we doing? I got to hold uh, Presley uh, earlier, which means I'm doing great because I got a baby fix. I thought about I, I thought about trying to preach with her, but uh, I tend to get really animated, so I need both hands. Uh, probably not going to work. My name is Pastor Daniel. Thanks for joining us uh, today. We're starting a new series uh, called The New Self, and we're in Ephesians 4. We've been in Ephesians 4 quite a while. So for over a year, we've been going in and out of the book of Ephesians as we slowly make our way through, and we're going to start back in that for about four weeks. Uh, We'll be going through Ephesians 4 and 5, take a quick break at the start of October, and then go right back into an eight-week series called Outdated, where we look at all these crazy things the Bible has to say about family and marriage and sex and divorce and parenting and everything else, all these outdated concepts, and figure out why in the world we're still following them 2,000 years later. Uh, So we'll be doing that across October and November. That'll be a a pretty fun series to invite people to. And then in December, we'll jump into our Christmas series. We've got lots going on. Uh, Chris was talking about this card. Hopefully you have one of these cards. What we asked you to do last week is take this card and begin to pray over where the Holy Spirit would find uh, in your life things that uh, potentially you really don't want to do because they make you uncomfortable. In fact, we asked you, uh, I don't remember this, we asked you to to prioritize or rank these five things, and we said, you know, this probably isn't all of the things that God would ask you to do, but these are some common ones that we've seen in our church, and we asked you to rank them from like, oh, I could probably do that, you know, number one, all the way to number five, which is uh, Jesus take the wheel, right? The, oh, dear Lord, I can't do that, and then really pray through actually the more difficult ones, because in our life we tend to grow only when we're uncomfortable, when God begins to stretch us and grow us. And so that's what we're doing with this. Um, if, you, if you missed last week, we're, we're praying through these things. And then uh, there's stickers out in the foyer. So when you find something that God is really bringing you into, and you decide to step forward in obedience to the Holy Spirit and do that thing, you're going to put a little sticker on your card. Uh, and and that's, a, that's for you. That's not for us. That's for you so that you have a reminder that you're committing to do something that God has prompted you to do. And you're stepping forward in obedience to do that thing. And so... Um, if you missed last week, you can get that on Spotify or YouTube and you kind of catch up on those things. But you're going to see people carrying these around and talking about them as, as we continue to press forward and do that. Now, <clears throat> let's get into Ephesians. Uh, reminder, because we've been doing this for a year on and off, but Ephesians, the, the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus has six chapters. The first three chapters, which we've covered already, are really uh, mostly doctrinal in nature. So they cover the truths of the gospel. They cover the truths of the goodness of God, the preeminence of Christ, uh, the promise to believers, the inheritance for us in the afterlife. It covers all this kind of deep theology to to set up the actual reason for the second half of the letter, which is in light of all the truths about Jesus and about God and about what he's done for us, now we should do blank. And blank is three chapters worth of things that begin to describe the Christian life in detail in different areas of our life and in the church. And so uh, in the front part of Ephesians 4, which we covered in our last uh, Ephesians series called Teach Me How to Church, we covered 17 verses roughly uh, in the front part of Ephesians 4 where we looked at the first part of application of all of these truths 
and primarily looked at the reason for the church, why we have the church, what we're supposed to be doing together, how we're supposed to do that, why do we have these guys named you know, pastors and shepherds, what are they supposed to do, how do they equip us, what do we have spiritual gifts for, right? We, we've covered all these things, and there's, a, there's kind, of a, kind of a rant going on that, that Paul's on that, he, that starts at, the, at Ephesians 4.1, where he begins to kind of, you can kind of see he's gaining speed, you know, he's getting a little excited as he's writing, he's going a little louder, and, he's, and he's, you know, he really starts to go, and it's going to bring us up here to verse 17, which is where we're going to start today, and we're really looking at this idea that he started in Ephesians 4.1, and it's, it's this idea of walk. I don't know if you remember this, if you were here for our previous series when we talked this, but, but he describes the Christian life as a walk. And the reason that's important is it's not a run, it's not a sprint, because it's going to take the rest of your life in which God is perfecting you and making you Christ-like in nature. It takes time. Crockpots, not microwaves. Do we remember some of this? Yes? Church, yes, okay, there's nods, it's good. I see, you're either, you're either green with me or you're falling asleep, but I'm just gonna go with the green with me. There we go, see? Somebody's alive. Listen, the Apostle Paul had someone fall asleep and fall out of a window and die while he was preaching, so I'm doing better than that, okay? That's why the seats are low. That's why the pews are close to the ground. Okay, anyways. So right before we get to 17, where we're going to start today, we have the Apostle Paul talking about spiritual gifts and what they're for, and he's going to come back in verse 17, and, and he's going to come back to this idea of walk. And the, and the walk is this, this proactive meaning. We participate in this pursuit of Jesus Christ, and we're moving as we go, because we never get to plop and sit. Because you plop and sit and get comfortable, and you can't, you're not walking anymore. You're not participating. Right? So there's an activity involved in it. And, and we're going to look at, even though we're looking at 17 through 24 today, we're going to look at one big illustration. Now, an illustration is the Apostle Paul does this. Jesus tells parables. It's where we take something, some, some, some activity uh, or some chore or something that's like really common, and you've done it a bunch of times. And, and because you've done it, we apply that thing to some biblical truth so that you'll get a better picture, better understanding of how that's supposed to work. The walk isn't really a walk, but we say walk so you understand how normal it should be. And, and the illustration you're going to get today is this idea of taking off a garment and putting on a new garment. This is going to be the, the primary illustration today that we're going, to, we're going to work on. But illustrations are really important because they, they captivate our imagination. They get our brains kind of thinking through why this matters and applying it to our life. And we use this in everyday life, right? We use this all the time uh, I, teach, uh, I teach CrossFit. I coach CrossFit classes, and in CrossFit classes, uh, we do uh, Olympic lifting. And so Olympic lifts are where you have this, kind of these complex movements under load, and they have to be done really precisely. And so when we teach this to people, uh, you guys knew I was in CrossFit, right? Because the first rule of CrossFit is you never stop talking about CrossFit. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So you walk into a bar, how do you know if uh, someone does CrossFit or is vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. <clears throat> okay, faster jokes. 
When we teach these uh, lifts, um, we start people with a PVC pipe. We don't even give them a barbell. We don't give them any weights, right? Because they're complex. And we've got to really walk through the, the movement. And, and, and in CrossFit, in all of these movements, all these heavy movements, the, 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 the squat snatch and the power clean and all these types of movements, what we're trying to teach is we're, we're teaching individuals how to use the biggest, most powerful muscles in their body, their hamstrings and their glutes, to move weight. And nobody does it right. Like hundreds and hundreds of people come in, and I'm trying to teach these movements and we're coaching these movements and they all do it wrong. Every time they come in and there's weight and they try to like use the puniest muscles they have, like their biceps and their forearms to lift all this weight. And it's, it's, it would be laughable if it didn't, wasn't also dangerous. And, and so we're, we're constantly going, no, 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 no. We want to teach you how to activate the powerful muscles in your body to move weight. And so for instance, as we're teaching that, we're trying to teach what we call hip extension, where we're getting all these muscles working to lift weight and nobody does it. And so we find came up with this illustration we use all the time. We're like, listen, you know how when you have two bags of groceries and you get out of the car and you realize you got to close the door, but, but your, your hands are full and you have to, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Everyone's done it. Maybe it's not groceries. Maybe it's like two babies and you get out of the car and you're like, oh, I left the door open. <laughs> if you hear nothing else today, <laughs> I have a feeling there's going to be memes about this. <clears throat> Well, what are we doing? I mean, we're using the, the, this illustration of a thing that we all have done to try to teach another skill that's important. And what was going to happen today in this scripture is the Apostle Paul is going to take something, putting, taking off a garment, putting on a garment. He's going to take an illustration that we've all done. And he's going to try to use it to activate your imagination so that you can grasp what God is trying to do to, to use something that if you're a believer, you have in you, the, the powerful muscles that you have in you, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that you have in you to actually walk out this faith. Does this make sense? Okay. I just had to find a way to get CrossFit into the sermon. Here we go. Verse 17. We've just finished in 1516 talking about spiritual gifts and why you have spiritual gifts is for the edification of the body, meaning it's for other people, not you. And verse 17, he's going to say this. Now this, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, part of what he's saying here, because he just finished telling you why you need to be using spiritual gifts, which is for other people, and then he says you can't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, is explaining this. And, and, and we get this wrong in church, so you need to hear this. You don't serve other people because it makes you feel good. Now, the futility of your mind, someone that is not saved does. There are plenty of non-Christians that serve in non-profits and charities and, and do good works all around the world, but they do it because inherently something about it makes them feel good about themselves. It builds their self-righteousness. They feel a little bit better. Oh, you know, I ladled out some soup today. I must be a good person. And what Paul's saying after he says you got to use your spiritual gifts for other people is, but not for the reason that people that don't know Jesus use their gifts. That's not why we use it. You're like, well, why do we use it? He's going to actually tell us why we use our spiritual gifts, and it's not to make you feel better. So if you've ever been serving in church, you're like, this doesn't make me feel good. That's actually okay, because that's not what it's for, okay? <clears throat> now, I like when he says you can't walk like Gentiles. That actually made me stop and, and read for a minute, because, because he's using Gentiles in a negative way, right? You can't, like, like Gentiles, like, ah, oh, you, can't, you can't walk like Gentiles, 
That's weird because Paul uses the term Gentiles in a really positive way most of the time. Paul is the, the one that actually defends that the gospel is for, by the way, Gentiles means non-Jewish people, right? People of non-Jewish background. So, so in that Greek-Roman society and that culture all around that, that whole Roman empire, most people were Gentiles, and then you had people that were of the Jewish faith, the Israelites. And so uh, Paul's the one that defends Gentiles all the time. He says the gospel's for Gentiles. The mystery of the, the gospel of Christ is that it came not just for Jews, but for everyone. And so Normally, he's using Gentiles in a very positive way, and all of a sudden, he says, you can't walk like Gentiles. Like, well, why would you suddenly use that negatively? And here's what Paul's doing, and I want you to catch this because it's important for us, and I'll I'll explain. He's saying this because he wants them to understand. He's writing to a church in Ephesus. These are mostly non-Jewish people. That their identity now, because of Jesus, can no longer be rooted in anything other than Jesus. Their, their identity can no longer be rooted in the fact that they were Gentile or Roman citizen or a, or a Hellenist Jew or I mean, anything. It, it has to be. In, if, if Paul were writing this to us today, he would, say, he would say, you can no longer walk as the Americans do. He would say, you can no longer walk as the Californians do. He would say, you no longer can walk like a, a, a Bakersfieldian does. Now, he's not saying there's no Christian Americans or no Christian Californians or no Christian Gentiles. There, there were. He's saying, you can't think of yourself like an American, a Californian, or a Bakersfieldian before you think of yourself as a child of God. Does this make sense? So he's, he's poking at him going, hey, don't you dare go down this patriotic path or this cultural path or this ethnic path before you understand that your identity is first rooted in Christ. There's a new allegiance in Christ. Now, he says, futility of their minds, and then I want you to hear this next one because it actually gets really negative. We've had 16 verses in Ephesians 4 of like really, 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 really positive, encouraging stuff. So just understand that it didn't start negative. It just gets here, okay? It says this in verse 18. They, talking about these Gentiles now, futility of their minds, they are darkened, even say blind in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That sounds terrible, right? Uh, What did he just say? He says, if you don't know Christ, you're blind alienated, meaning ostracized, away, isolated from relationship with God, ignorant and hard-hearted. Now, I just want you to understand when you and I live in a broken, dysfunctional world, like that's what the Bible says, the world is fractured because of sin, started the Garden of Eden, we live in a broken world that will not put, it will not be put right, it will not be fully reconciled and renewed until Christ comes again. We live in a broken, dark world. So when we deal with the world, when we deal with people who do not know Jesus, we're dealing with people that are blind, alienated, ignorant, and hard-hearted. What that means is you don't get to take your, your moral and lay it on them and act like that's going to fix them. They're blind. They're dead. We don't even speak the same language. You're not going to argue a corpse back to life. You, you understand what I mean, right? Like if you're, if you're yelling at a cadaver, I don't care how good your argument is. Right? You, you're not like, man, that debate was so good the corpse just got right back up and started walking around. I know how to debate. 
It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So, you, so you understand where and what the world is. We don't get, you know, the Ten Commandments would fix everything. They're dead. Nothing fixes them but Jesus. Now, we lead arguments and conversations with the outside world with grace and humility. We lead them with gentleness because they don't understand spiritual arguments. So we're pointing to Christ. Now, here, here's, here's what happens to the believer. That, that's the outside world. But, but you and I can get callous as well, can get hard-hearted as well, even as a believer. We, we can allow callousness to harden our heart. Now, how do we do that? We resist the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes and, and is convicting you of something in your life. He's pointing out something in your life. He's pointing to some behavior that you need to change. He's pointing to some sin that you're tolerating. He's pointing to something that he's been calling you into. And you keep ignoring that and ignoring that and ignoring that. And at some point, you become a little bit numb to it. And you become a little bit more numb to it. And, and at some point, it begins to harden your heart. We call this searing our conscience. Becoming numb to conviction. And that happens in our lives when we continue to ignore the work of the Holy Spirit. You get to the point where someone's having an extramarital affair. It didn't go from zero to 100. It started up here, tolerating thoughts that shouldn't have been tolerated, sitting on things that we shouldn't be thinking about, and then over time, ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit, pushing away repentance to God, and then somewhere down the line, it is a slippery slope back into sin because we've hardened our heart toward God. If you think about um, what we're seeing in 2022 in our world, just, just the amount of depravity, um, the, the almost um, purposeful, intentful nature of the way we put depravity on a pedestal, whether that's uh, sexual sin, um, whether that's greed, whether that's lust. We, like we, we, we've highlighted it, we put it up, we, we've almost idolized it, we advertise it, it's in our marketing. Uh, if you don't believe me, drive down Las Vegas Strip. Take five minutes where you're trying to cover your kid's eyes, like just to get down the road. And we think, yeah, the world's terrible. It always has been. Go read about Sodom and Gomorrah and then tell me about Las Vegas. Like, like we look at the world and think, man, um, Jesus must be coming because, you know, it, it's absolutely horrible. It always has been. It always has been dark. It always has been hard-hearted. It's, it's actually always been this way. And listen, we can lament that we live in a broken, dysfunctional world, but, but really, in reality, it's just us understanding we live in a battlefield. We live in a battlefield where the church is the hope of the world. Now, I, I understand the lament from many of us that have kids and grandkids that are, that are growing up. We see this culture and we see the insidious nature of, of culture on our kids and, and we lament how bad culture is. But I want to remind you what the Bible says that your kids primarily are going to learn right and wrong from you. From the way you pursue Jesus, from the way you live out a desperation for Christ, from the way you model what is in the Bible, not just tell them what's in the Bible, from your discipleship. This is why if you're married or you have kids, your primary ministry is your family. Before all other ministry. 
I talked to a lot of young men who, are, who they get saved, they get fired up, they want to go into ministry. And, and I'm like, listen, that's not your primary ministry. Your primary ministry is your spouse and your children. The Bible's really clear on that. So yes, we live in a broken, dysfunctional world, but do not lament that your, your kids, your children, your relatives are being influenced by that world. Take heart, because God put you in their life for a reason. Now, we look, we look at what Paul's saying in, in these verses, in 17, 18, 19, and he's saying this. Darkened hearts and darkened minds lead to darkened behavior. That seems very self-explanatory, right? Darkened hearts and darkened minds lead to darkened behavior. If you have a hard heart and you have an ignorant mind, it's going to lead to depraved behavior. God comes and God regenerates our heart. He takes out our heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. He illuminates our mind all of a sudden where we could never see and understand spiritual things. Suddenly we see and understand spiritual things because God has regenerated us. He's illuminated us. And now we begin to recognize there's something else in this world. When we're dealing with the outside world, it is not our, our moral framework. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not our, 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 our spiritual traditions that are going to impact the outside world. What is going to impact the outside world is us pointing everything about our changed nature, pointing back to God and going, I didn't do that. God did that. And then becoming a fire starter. There's this little spark that begins to speak to someone who has a hard heart and a darkened mind. And listen to me. God regenerates the heart and God illuminates the mind. We don't have that power, right? Nobody here gets to save anybody. But God chooses to use us to reach them. That's a privilege. God didn't, God didn't need to use you. God didn't need to use me. God could have just illuminated their mind and regenerated their heart. He, 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 he chooses to use us and allows us to participate in his work because he's a gracious God. That is a privilege to us. It's not a burden. He could have ignored us and gone on about his work. Verse 20. So, 17, 18, 19, here's this dark, ignorant, blind, hard-hearted people. And then we get the but. We like buts in the Bible. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Three things Paul's saying real quickly. Uh, there's this uh, old Sunday school joke that like if you're in Sunday school and you don't know the answer to a question, just say Jesus and you're probably right. You ever heard that? Like if you don't know, it's like, oh, Jesus. You're like 95% of the time you got the answer right. Well, that, in some sense, that's what Paul's telling you. Listen, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Christ and were taught in Christ as the truth is in Christ. I mean, so, so the subject is Jesus, the teacher is Jesus. The atmosphere is Jesus. That's the answer. Let, let, me, let me tell you why this is important. It's not, it's not I, I know that most of you know that, that Jesus is the answer. I, I get that. But what I'm trying to get you to understand is a lot of what you know, a lot of what you've learned, a lot about the way you go about life, you learned before you knew Jesus. And understanding the difference between what Jesus teaches and what you just kind of already knew as you grew up in a broken, dysfunctional world is very important. Because you've got to be able to set them apart and say, this is of Christ and this is not. 
Do you understand why that's important? Like Jesus never taught you anxiety. That's not of Christ. Jesus never taught you doubt. That's not from Jesus. Jesus never taught you condemnation. He doesn't, he doesn't bring that. Jesus didn't teach you greed. Jesus didn't teach you pride. Jesus didn't teach you stubbornness. Those are not from Christ. Those are things that we, 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 we have absorbed and learned in this old nature, that, growing up in a broken world. And, and we've got to differentiate what is of Christ and what isn't of Christ if we're going to be intentional about what the walk looks like. Without Jesus, nothing really matters. <laughs> Right? We, we talk about hopelessness, discontentment, but with him, everything's changed. That includes our way of living and our way of life. And so differentiating between the two is really important. <clears throat> Let me see if I can give you an analogy. This analogy has been used before. Uh, in fact, it's been used here. Anyone see this um, independent film, low budget, probably haven't heard of it, called The Matrix. <laughs> Couple of, yeah, yeah. Neo and the whole, okay. In, in this story, if you haven't watched it, it's 20 years old, okay, so if it's spoilers, it's your fault. <laughs> in, in this movie, there's a guy named Neo and he, wake, he basically wakes up and realizes that the, all, all of the world that he's living in is a computer simulation, and that's not the real world. You, you guys actually remember this, right? Okay, okay. He wakes up, everything's a computer simulation, it's not the real world. When he does, not only is, is reality shifted, but none of the things that were important before are important now because they weren't real, they didn't actually matter. And so, so even, even the way of living, even the way to go about normal life, even, even, even up and down and gravity and the rules and physics, I mean, everything's changed because it's, a, it's new, it's different. Like, like his mind suddenly is aware of something different and it's a different world that he's living in. Therefore, everything shifts. Does this make sense? So what I'm trying to tell you, this is what Paul's trying to say. Listen, be, before Jesus, there was this whole set of rules and then there's Jesus and now all the rules have changed. Nothing's the same. And this is really gonna matter for his illustration coming up in verse 22, okay? Nothing's the same. Nothing stays the same once Jesus comes and illuminates your mind and regenerates your heart. All, of, all bets are off. Verse 22, he's gonna tell why. He's gonna explain why. That's not what you learn in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him or taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I want to make a quick point before I explain this illustration and we talk about it, but you know, in verses like 17 through 21, he kept referring to the Gentiles as they. They did this, and they're this, and they're hard-hearted, and they, they're ignorant, and they got they, 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 and all of a sudden, he switches to you. And, and, and I just want you to remember that what he's saying is, you were they. Does that make sense? Every single one of us, even if, if, if Jesus has come and given us a new heart and, 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 and illuminated our minds so that we can actually see what's going on, every one of us lived that dead life before. 
We, we were all ignorant. We were all hard-hearted. No, no Christian ever gets to be a Christian and look at the broken world and be like, Psh, what idiots. We're the idiot. We're them. That's why we live a life of gratitude. Okay. This is a big deal. We've got an old self. We're going to take off. We're going to renew our minds, and we're going to put on a new self. Three steps. And I'll walk through them because he's trying to be really explicit. He's using this terminology like you're taking off a cloak and you're putting it away because every one of us has gotten dressed and gotten undressed, right? This is, this is a common thing. And what he's saying is, listen, you've got this old nature, these, the rules of, of the world that you live by of look out for number one and do what makes you feel happy. And the old Disney, follow your heart, it'll be true to you, which is a big bogus lie. And, and you, 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 you learned all these things in this broken world, but it's deceitful and it's tricking you and you're ignorant and you were an idiot for trusting it, but now you know better. So your job is to, to take this old self and take it off, put it away. Get like, like don't wear it anymore. And here's the problem I, I, for, for most Christians. You put your faith in Jesus. He regenerated your heart. He illuminated your mind. You saw it. You put it away. You started to walk away from it and you went, I had some good times back there, you know? Remember some okay things. I wasn't so bad. I mean, it's a struggle now. You remember the Matrix, right? One of the guys, like one of the, one of the, the, the bad guys in the film, um, he knows it's all, it's all fake, and he wants to go back because the new world's a struggle. There's a battle going on. He doesn't want to be part of the battle anymore. He just wants to go back into ignorance. And he's like, can you plug me back in? Ignorance is bliss. And we, we do that sometimes, right? We get out, we realize the Christian life is still difficult, even though we have contentment in God, even though we have a promise from God, it's tough. And so there's times where we go, and we're kind of the Lot's wife thing, right? Where we're looking back at the Sodom and Gomorrah, and you remember Lot's wife? She was really salty. Um, <laughs> that's your jokes. And we, the Bible talks about this too, this idea of taking off ourselves and then, and then realizing like, and looking back at something that we know was death. Nobody logically looks back at the old self and wishes and goes, I wish I wasn't saved. I wish God hadn't regenerated my heart. I wish I didn't have eternal life. I wish I wasn't a son or daughter of the king. Nobody says that, but we look back at it. Proverbs 26, 11 says it this way. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. You ever seen that? You ever had a dog and it sits there for like, Oh, flipping two hours coughing. Bleh, 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 bleh. And you're like, just get it out. <laughs> and finally it's like, bleh. and you're like, that is disgusting. And then it walks back and starts licking it. And you're like, are you kidding me? That is... Do we not do the same thing? We look at the old life, we look at the ignorance, we look at the hard-heartedness, we look at the depravity in the world, we look at those things, God has saved us from them, he's redeemed us, he's taken the prodigal son, he's cleaned us, he's, he's clothed us, he's slain the fatted calf and put the ring on our finger and then we're like, that vomit looks good. Let me help, biblical principle, your takeaway for today. The vomit's never good. It's still vomit. Paul's going, like, no, you take off the old self. 
Why would you want the oil? You don't want that. Don't trick yourself into the deceitful nature of your old self. Don't go back. You're, you, you realize all right, our emotions are not trustworthy. <laughs> Everyone knows that? Like the moment you go, well, I feel like we're probably in the danger zone. Don't trust your heart. It's deceitful. Why do we take off the old self? Why do, why do, we, why do, we, why do we take it off and, and leave it? Because we have been given new hearts. We've been given new minds. That leads to new self. You've got to take off the old and walk away from it. Now, the simple fact is that until God has given us a new heart and has illuminated our minds, we don't even have the choice. We couldn't take it off if we wanted to. So God saves us, he cleans us up, and then it's up to us to take off the old self and walk away and not go back to the vomit. Second thing Paul says in verse 23, he says, be renewed in your mind. Now what does being renewed in your mind look like? What is, we don't do a lot with renewals. That's not a word we use for our minds much. Most of the time we talk about renewals, it's like, gotta pay my car insurance again or something, right? What does renewing my mind look like and why does that matter? Well, two things here. The first is this. The the Greek that he's using here for renewing your minds is daily. It's a daily occurrence, not a weekly at 11 a.m. on Sunday, a daily occurrence that we're going to renew our minds. Now, what does it look like? Well, the great thing about the Bible is it explains itself. We have references to renewing our mind, and Paul in other letters will actually explain specifically what he means by renewing ourselves. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Be involved in activities that renew the mind. In Philippians 4, 8, and 9, he says it this way. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the first thing to renew our minds is we participate, we take part in activities, physical activities that help us to renew our mind. Now, what are these physical activities? Primarily, it's serving other people. So go back to verse 17, and I say, why do we serve other people and use our gifts if it doesn't make us feel good? Paul tells us why. Because by serving other people, it helps us to renew our minds. By practicing these things, it helps us to renew our minds. So it takes the physical exertion of trying to act out these things in our lives to help us renew our minds. Why? Because let's be honest, we're pretty forgetful people. Amen? We've got to do them continually, serve other people. There's, there, one of the reasons that our church has a goal of having 100% of the congregation serving on teams and in ministries is because we know that if you will begin serving other people, it gets your eyes off of yourself and onto others. And in that process, it helps renew your mind, which draws you closer to the Lord. So we don't want you to serve on teams because we need free labor. We want you to serve on teams because it changes you. Does this make sense? Okay. So number one, you're going to participate in activities that will help renew your mind, right? We, we, uh, last two weeks ago, we talked about 
stirring up your affections for Jesus. Does anyone, anyone remember that? Right? We're going we're gonna to do things that we know will actually help us match our emotions to the truths of God. Because we're emotional people and our emotions wander all over the place. So we're going to intentionally put activities into our life that will stir us up. And one of those activities is serving other people. And, and how, do we, how do we know what those activities are? Well, let me help. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, that's how we know. Number two, so we're going to be involved in activities that renew in the mind. Number two, we're going to desire to pattern ourselves after God. We, we want to be like God. Now, now how, do we, how do we do that? Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, old self, but be transformed by the, there it is, renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's going to be in us something that we state, that we commit to. We are going to commit to seeking God. We're going to commit to pursuing God. That's, that's on us, right? We can't regenerate our heart. We can't illuminate our own mind, but we can commit to pursuing God. So, so when you got a short red-headed pastor that says, I want you to commit to praying through things that will pull you toward God, you're going to go, yes, pastor, let's all try it right now. Yes. Right, we're going to commit to pursuing God. I want to commit to seeking him and letting him speak to me. Now, there's a couple things. I, I, I want you to make sure that you hear when it comes to uh, committing to this. We live in the noisiest time in history. There's more that is, just desires your attention today than ever before. There are tablets and, and things that beep and, and alert and ding and, and pop up and play, autoplay. And man, TikTok could get three hours of your life in a second if you let it. Right? Like, like, like the height of human ingenuity is how well can we capture your attention and not let it go. And what I want you to hear the Bible say is you have to commit to silence and space and you have to protect it and you have to guard it so that there's room to hear from God. For some of you moms of small kids, that may mean a grand total of 14 minutes in the shower before someone's banging on the door saying, Mommy, I understand. That's 14 minutes of seeking God. You commit to that. You fight for that. You prioritize that. You architect that in your day. Do you understand? We architect the space and the quiet in our life by putting away the distractions so that the Holy Spirit has time in our lives to get our attention and to speak to us. And then it's our job to follow. But if you don't architect that time in your life and then you wonder why this life seems so dissatisfying, so discontent, there's got to be more. Look at your life and figure out where am I leaving time for God to actually speak to me. So we're involved in activities that renew the mind. We desire to pattern ourselves after God. And then third, we study and apply God's word. We study and apply God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. 
This is Paul talking to one of his protégés, a young pastor named Timothy. He says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. How does God primarily speak to you and I? Through his word, the Bible. How do we primarily test or discern God's will? Through the Bible. How do we allow God to change us? We read the Bible. We dwell on the Bible. We read what it says in the Bible, and then we go and do it in our lives. So we're going to renew our minds in three ways. We're going to be involved in activities that will help us renew our mind. We're going to find ways to stir our affection for Jesus. We're going to desire to pattern ourselves after God by seeking God, by giving him time and space to actually speak to us. And we're going to be students of the word. We're going to spend time in the Bible. We're going to study the Bible. We're going to let the Bible speak to us. When, when, when my emotions, my feelings don't match up with what the word says, it's a, it, it's a debate. Who's right, me or God? God, and I'm going to let that change me instead of letting my emotions change the text. So we've put off the old garment. Daily, we're working on renewing our minds. And then verse 24, we're going to put on, we're going to put on God's righteousness and holiness. Verse 24 says this, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When we put on God's righteousness like a garment that we didn't earn, that we couldn't make, that we couldn't afford to buy, because that new garment that of Christ's holiness, of Christ's righteousness, that is a kingly robe, that is the royalty, that is the, the robe of royalty. That signifies that you and I are sons and daughters of the king. And you don't get to fake your way into that robe. It is granted to you by God's graciousness. He has given you this royal robe that imbues his righteousness from the cross on you and I that covers our sins. And we get to put that on, and it signifies for us that we are royalty. We have been adopted into the king's family. We, re- we wear Christ's very righteousness as a garment. Romans 13, 14 would say it this way. But put on the Lord Christ Jesus. Literally put Jesus on and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. This is the new self. These are the new thoughts, the new desires, the new goals, the new reasons to be alive, the actual reasons for real hope, the new way of doing things. Now, we put on this new self, but it is that renewing of our mind that is necessary to act in a way that is worthy of the robes. God gave you a a garment of righteousness free of charge. Now you get to live up to it. Amen? And the last thing you want to do, standing in this this royal garb that signifies you as a a son or daughter of the king, is look back at the vomit and want to go put it back on. 
So we strain, we toil, we fight, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling every single day, doing whatever we possibly can to renew our mind to the new self so that we actually cling to the God that saved us. Does that make sense? The last place we ever want to find ourselves is revisiting the vomit. The daily renewing of our mind is needed to function in these garments. If not, and we've all experienced this, so I want you to hear this because we've all run into this. Um, You ever heard anyone call someone in church a hypocrite? Maybe once or twice? Well, what do you think it would look like if someone's wearing this garment of righteousness that's, that, that, that came from and was granted to them from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Creator of all, and it signifies them as a son or a daughter or a king, and they're acting like a fool in it? We call that a hypocrite. So we strain and we struggle not to earn the garment which has already been given to us, but to cling to the king who gave it to us in the first place to begin to be changed into the image and nature of Christ. I was thinking this week about um, after God saves us. You know, you, prodigal son is just such a phenomenal story. You know, when you see the father's reaction to the son as he's coming down the road and he runs to him, he won't even wait for him to get there, and he throws his arms around him. But you gotta, you gotta imagine that guy's pretty smelly. He's been working in like pigsties and stuff. And he grabs him and he hugs him and he puts the new robe on him and he slips a ring on his finger and he slays the fatted calf and he throws a massive party that even the Baptists will dance at. I mean... <laughs> Right? I mean, it's a big deal because of his love for the son. And you know, I think about after, after God saves us, how he, he sees us struggling with, with the garment that he's given us and not staring back at our old lives. Um, my eldest daughter got her license this week, and I was uh, so nervous during her driving test. Like I was at home and I, and my wife's texting me like it started, you know, and like, I'm just super anxious because I want you, you that have kids can relate to this. I want the best for my daughter, right? I mean, we want the best for them. I want, I want a, a vibrant life. I want a life of contentment and satisfaction and just overwhelming blessing and just, oh man, I want the best for her. But here's the, I can't, I can't pick any of it for her. See, I've trained her, I've raised her, I've loved her, I support her, but she's got to choose. And I'm just in tears thinking like, man, I want her to choose the best. I want the best for her and I can't choose for her. And I wonder sometimes if that's not the heart of God. He sent his son for us. He died for us. He took the weight of sin on his shoulders for us. He sees us, he puts the robe on us, he puts the ring on us, he slays the fatted calf for us, he, but, but we have to choose. Every day we're gonna wake up and we're gonna decide, are we gonna renew our mind? Are we gonna chase after the things of Christ? Or are we gonna look back our, after, over our shoulder at our old life and, and wanna walk back into that? The heart of God is a desire for you to be all of the things that he actually created you for, to be in relationship with him, 
in real contentment with him, in, in, in a life that is so vibrant, so over the top, and so full of peace that in the midst of trials and tribulations and persecutions, all you can think about is how amazing it is to be a child of God. But we choose. He saved us, and then we choose. Do I want to go back to that old life? Do I want to, do I want to look back over my shoulder at that old life and, and wish that I could go back to it? Do I want to struggle with that, or do I want to press forward? Renewing my mind, pursuing a relationship with him, letting him change how I think and how I function and what, what matters in this life. For some of you, whether you're here or you're online, for some of you, maybe you have never turned around and run back to the Father. Maybe you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ. And today, maybe today is the day you're going to run back to the Father. And you'll let him save you. And if you want to do that today, if you, want to, you want to, if you want to just talk to somebody about what it looks like to live that life, our elders and uh, prayer team members are going to be up here, and you can come up. We'd love to talk to you about what that looks like, what God has for you and in store for you. But if, you, if you're a believer and you just, over time, spent very little time actively renewing your mind, committed to the things of God, allowing God to change you and change your very nature. And you have just found yourself in the season looking back over your shoulder at your old life and wanting to, wanting to put your toe back in the water of your old self. You ever done that? You ever toyed with that? You ever thought it's just a little sin? It's just a little problem? It's not going to become a big problem? Matt Chandler would say that uh, the moment you take sin that you know is sin, no matter how small it is, and you bring it in, it's not cute. We tend to think of small mistakes as being cute, being silly. Oh, it's just a little bitterness. Oh, it's just a little unforgiveness. Oh, it's just a, I, I just, I, it's just a little problem. I can stop whenever I want to. I can forgive them if I really want to. I just, I mean, I just can be mad for a while. He says, when you, when, you, when you take sin and you bring it into your house, it's like bringing in a baby lion. It looks cute to begin with, but the more you feed that, the bigger it gets. And there's some day where you don't realize if that sin has gotten so overwhelming that your kids are disappearing and you're wondering where they went. You, you can't tolerate that sin. The only appropriate reaction when you know that you have sin, you have old nature in your life that you're tolerating and you're fostering and you're holding on to, the only appropriate reaction is to take it out in the backyard and put a bullet in its head. Because there's more. It's vomit. There's nothing good about the old life that we go back to. So maybe you, you, you've been in that season where you've been struggling with your old self. You keep wandering back to those old habits and those old hangups and that old sin and that old condemnation. And, and, and you need to recommit your life today to pressing forward, renewing your mind. We're going to have elders and pastors up here would love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to find accountability for you in your life to help you in what is this Christian walk that is ongoing. We're going to do that today. So as uh, we play this song, we're going to have people up to pray with you, to love on you. If you want to use the altar today to just come up and talk to God and repent, uh, by all means, you move as the Lord leads you.